finally put that bookend on Abraham's story. We're going to begin to transition into uh, not just Isaac's life, but the life of his sons, Jacob and Esau, as, as you saw in the, in the verses. And I think this is a kind of interesting transition point where we get to kind of see how, how God's promises are, are going to translate between Abraham, who we've seen interacting with God. He's been the one figure who's really been interacting with God all along up to this point. And now we're going to see that begin to shift and different people begin to interact with God. And we're going to see kind of what that legacy, the legacy of, you know, um, God's promising Abraham that I'm going to work through you and through your family. And we're going to see how that begins to transition this week and as we move forward. Um, so as we get started, um, I just want to kind of continue out of, out of worship um, and into this with prayer. So let's pray. God, um, I'm just so thankful for, for these words that we get to sing as your church, all of these things that we believe to be true about you. You're our Savior, crucified, risen, coming again, our only hope for salvation. And God, this morning as we look at, at this kind of summary of Isaac and Rebecca's early marriage and, and, what, and what it looked like as they were beginning to have a family, how, how your promises would continue through them, but, but just also that we would understand how it is that you have been at work in their lives and how it is that you work in our lives. And the level of detail with which you are concerned and the, and the choices that you make that affect our lives. And God, I just pray that now you would be at work in our hearts preparing us to hear whatever, whatever peace you have prepared for each of us that's going to affect us in some way and cause us to be shaken or, or wonder what it is that it, we're, we're, how it is that we're supposed to grow or change because of, because of this passage of Scripture specifically. So God, I just pray that you would be at work in our hearts now, shaping us and molding us and crafting us into a more Christ-like version of your church. And that we would be a people who are known for our complete surrender, our, our fearless following of you, our, our, complete, our complete just letting go of all that we have and recognizing your control and your sovereignty over, over everything in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So... I'm going to be kind of summarizing lots of what we just read. You can also turn to Romans 9 because we're going to end up there in just a few minutes. Um, you, you can hold your place in Genesis if you need to reference back, but you are also free to go ahead and start flipping in the direction of Romans 9 because we'll be spending a little bit of time there a little bit further in. Uh, so here's the thing. As, as we are transitioning out of Abraham's life and into Isaac's story, we really don't get a lot of, of Isaac's growing up story. I mean, we get, we get the part where his dad was commanded by God to kill him. We get that. Um, but we don't get a whole lot of what Isaac was going through during that part. We don't get a whole lot of what Isaac went through growing up. This is kind of the first real moment where we get to see Isaac kind of acting as patriarch, as, as head of household. Um, because because this, this is the end for Abraham. We've been following him for, for several months now and just kind of seeing how God has grown him and how he's changed him and how he's moved him from one place to another. And, and I think it's a fitting end when we see that after Abraham died, it says he was gathered to his family and he was buried in the cave, right? In the cave 
that he had purchased that we talked about several weeks ago. That, that cave that, that signified that he had stake. He had a claim to land in Canaan. This was the moment, that was the moment where he actually became one who lives in this region. His family is from this area that God had promised to them. And in, and in seeing him be buried there, in that moment, in Abraham, at Abraham's burial, it's just a reminder that God truly has called him out from his uh, parents' house, from, his, from, his, from the land that he knew, and he really has taken root in this new region, and that God has given him a new home, a new place to be. And we get this description of, of all of these other children that Abraham had. And, and here's the thing. No, the promise was not meant to carry on throughout those children and, and the relationships that he has. I mean, the, the wives that he and the, the other wife that he took was described more as a concubine. So I don't want to get into all the legality of what that represents culturally. And, and obviously, Abraham still saw Isaac as his one son, his son who he would give everything to, his son who the promise would continue through. But, but I think it's interesting that, that part of God's promise to Abraham was that I will make a great nation out of you. There will be many people who come from you. And, and even at his death, even at this time, we still get this picture. We get this picture of a great lineage. We get, we get lots of multiplication that is coming from Abraham and, and this, this kind of snapshot of God beginning to answer his promises. God beginning to demonstrate that in Abraham's life. No, the promise wasn't meant to go through any of these other names that Nick so skillfully read for all of us. But at the same time, it's just a small picture of the way God was beginning to multiply Abraham. And he really was going to have this great lineage with, with, with so many children that you, you can't count them because they're, they're, they're like the number of the stars in the sky, right? All of these promises that God had made in the end, we're still getting this picture of God faithfully answering his promises. And here's the thing. Abraham still, like we said, Abraham still understood how God was working. He still understood what the plan was. He didn't try to usurp God saying that my promises are going to continue through Isaac. And he, he still honored that they were his children and he gave them gifts but in the end, he knew that God had a specific plan for Isaac. And, and again, not desiring that Isaac would be drawn away. We talked about this last week, how he very specifically didn't want Isaac to go back to his homeland to find a wife. And he also didn't want Isaac to marry a wife from Canaan because he didn't want his heart to be pulled away from the specific calling that God has. Abraham doesn't have that same set of standards for all of his other children. Just like with Ishmael and just like with the rest of these, he ends up sending them away to find a new home because, because he wants to keep Isaac focused on the call of God and the mission that God has specifically set aside for Isaac. He doesn't want him to be distracted or pulled away by different relationships. He wants him to be able to focus solely on the mission and purpose that God had ordained for him from before his birth. And, and Abraham understands this. Remember, you have to remember, even before Isaac had been born, right? He had, Abraham had asked God, can't your promise just, just go through Ishmael? Can't we just do it this way? And God said, no, I have a specific plan. So, so even at this point, Abraham, again, does not question God anymore. He knows who the promise is meant for and, and puts all of his focus on setting up Isaac to be a successful heir to the promises that Abraham had already made, that God had already made to Abraham. All he has is given to Isaac, who is his true heir. Even though 
He wasn't his first son. And that's going to be key. That's going to be important. We're going to come back to that idea. Because this is a theme that has been true of God on many occasions, right? God constantly kind of challenges what our expectations would have been, especially societally speaking here, where, where the firstborn son was the one who was supposed to receive all the blessing, all the promise, all the, all the continuing, all the, all, all the rights of the, the firstborn heir of a father. But yet, like we'll continue to see, God continually challenges what our expectations were and demonstrates that he's going to work in different ways. Isaac was not Abraham's firstborn son. Neither, neither was, if you think back to creation, neither was the son of Adam and Eve who the promise would continue through, right? Cain or Abel were born before Seth, but because of different circumstances, God chose to continue his promise made to Adam and Eve through Seth. God, God is consistently surprising us with who he chooses to pass his promises down through. We don't have in, in our culture kind of the same um, firstborn gets everything, unfortunately, kind of approach um, anymore. We don't, we don't, we don't do that in, in the same way anymore. So, so it's not as surprising to us um, that God would, would use a second born son or, or just not the firstborn in any way. Um, but, but this, this way that God is working and that, that we see kind of continually playing out in Jacob and Esau's life as we kind of get to that in just a few minutes. This is a surprising thing. This is a shocking thing. This is, this is not how things work. And yet God is continually choosing to challenge our expectations and say, I have a different and more specific, unique plan for these people, for whom I'm going to save the world through, who my promises are going to continue through. This theme is echoed immediately through Isaac's sons. Isaac, second born, now has two sons, and one of whom is going to be the second born, who's the one that God is going to choose. If you read, as you're reading through Genesis, the author really likes to kind of use symmetry to kind of set up major section breaks. And he usually uses a genealogy to break those up. And he specifically uses that phrase. These are the generations of insert name here to kind of say, hey, this is the direction that we're going now. We had, we had a nice long genealogy when we got to the beginning of Abraham's story several months ago. And now we get to one again where he says, these are the generations of Abraham. And he goes down and lists out his sons. And then we start to transition into Isaac's family saying our focus is now shifting away from Abraham. We're now going toward the next heir of God's promises. We, next, we now enter the next major section and our focus is going to shift. And, and, and even though we're just meeting these characters, even though we've just met Rebecca last week, and even though we still haven't really gotten to know Isaac and the way that he's going to you know, lead his family or the way that he's going to interact with his, with his wife or his children, even though we don't really know where their hearts are at this point, even in this genealogy, even in this kind of summary of their life up to this point, we're beginning to get a picture that, that not only Isaac, but also Rebecca, who we talked about being willing to um, follow God and leave her family on the spot last week. Um, as we get to know them, that their hearts really are already prepared to faithfully believe and follow God. Because, because here's the thing. 
Rebecca is experiencing, and again, symmetry, God using symmetry to kind of make the same point. Rebecca has experienced barrenness the same way that Sarah had, right? Just like before, Sarah had no children. She was very old, seemed impossible, and yet ultimately God gives her a son. The same thing is true in Rebecca's life. She also is barren, but what do we see about her response, right? How does her, how does her response to barrenness um, I guess, differ from her mother-in-law's, right? Where Sarah was met with this challenge and instead said, I'm going to try to manufacture a solution. I'm going to create something different. I'm going to, I'm going to come up with my own way of solving this. It says, Rebecca went and inquired of the Lord. Well, it says that Isaac went and inquired of the Lord on her behalf. They didn't try to, try to fix it. They went to God. They said, God, this is, this is a you thing. This is a, this is a thing that you can provide the answer to, right? Later on, she's going to have some interesting um, complications during prayer. She's going to be like, something's going on here that doesn't seem right. And her, her immediate response is, I'm going to God. And I'm going to go speak to him. And I'm going to inquire of the Lord. Just that idea of they both chose to inquire of the Lord in that moment. When, when, when they didn't understand what was supposed to be next. When they didn't understand how God was going to fulfill the promises. Knowing that, knowing that they were supposed to have this same lineage that Abraham had been promised. And that Isaac was the answer to. They were experiencing this kind of brokenness. This, this sense of helplessness. Yet their response. And this is what I want us to realize as the church. When they did not understand what the solution was, their solution was not to create something. Their solution was not to figure it out and try to fix it on their own. Their solution was, we are going to go and inquire of the Lord. We are going to God first. We are going to go to him and we're going to say, you are the only source of solution here. And how often is that our actual response? How often when things get tough, when we have questions about life, perhaps you also are struggling with infertility. Perhaps you also are struggling with some sort of God has promised this thing, yet I'm not seeing the results. Perhaps he's, perhaps you have been saved. And you're like, I'm not seeing maturity happening within me. I'm not growing. I'm not seeing these things change. Is your response to say, I obviously have to, you know, pick myself up by my bootstraps and make something happen? Or is it that we, we, we should get on our knees and beg God to change us or change something in our lives? How often is our response on our knees in prayer, trusting that he's the one who's able to affect change? We aren't the ones who are able to affect change. It's by the power of God. It's by the faithfulness of God. It's God who is going to make his name great through the things that he does. And we're going to talk a little bit in just a second about what God's motivation is sometimes in withholding certain things, saying no to certain things only to later answer that prayer or make that change in our lives. But, but here's the thing. Praying for God to intervene in this moment demonstrated that faith that only God could change their circumstances. That's the thing. Prayer is not this superstitious thing. I say these words and then God does this thing for me. Prayer is a demonstration of our faith. Prayer is a demonstration of our belief. If we actually believe that God 
is in control of his creation and able to affect change. That's what drives us to prayer. When we see this brokenness, when we look at our world, when we look at the society that we live in and we see the brokenness, we see the, the broken relationships, we see the, we see the like, great negativity and divide that is present in just, just our culture in America, but around the world in, in general. Like When we see all of the brokenness, We realize that only God is powerful enough and able to actually affect change in that. If we truly have faith in him, belief that he is the one who is able to affect that change, that is what drives us back to prayer. That is what drives us to him. And I think that's, it's, it's a question worth asking ourselves, you know, what is my initial response when I'm met with some sort of dire circumstance, frustrating circumstance, something that I, that I want? Again, it could be that you're struggling with any number of things. It could be spiritual. It could be physical. It could be financial. It could be anything. What is your response? Is your response to try to figure it out? Is your response to try to understand what's going wrong so that you can change something about your understanding? Or is your response to just surrender your control over that situation to God and ask him to intervene in some way? Because here's the thing. God still desired to fulfill his promises through Isaac's family. The promise had already been made. He could just have easily have said, Everything's going to be fine. They're going to have kids and I'm going to go ahead and keep working through them that way. But yet he doesn't. His withholding children from them for a period of time could be that he is trying to demonstrate his sovereignty in this, continuing to remind the people, I am at work in this. If this plan is going to be accomplished, it's only going to be accomplished because I have made it so. It's this reminder that God is in charge. God is in control. He is orchestrating this plan yet again. We can't say, oh, it's because Isaac and Rebecca did everything they're supposed to do, so obviously God's plan worked. Their recognition that they needed to pray to God so that they could have children demonstrates that they know that for God's plan to be accomplished, it had to be accomplished by God's power alone. It was not within them to accomplish God's promises. And again, like we said, Rebecca's pregnant. She's like, something weird's going on here. I don't think this feels the way this is supposed to feel. But instead of just trying to figure it out on her own or just trying to sit there and complain or, or say, man, everything's bad, she inquires of God, right? She says, God, what is, what is this? Because this, this doesn't seem right. And in that moment, God actually responds. He actually speaks back to her and he gives her this, this promise about what it is that she is experiencing. And that she says, there are, he says, there are two nations inside of you and they are already at war. They are all, you, you think sibling rivalries are a thing, which to a degree they are, which is why I know that I am the favorite child because I won the war. They all ran away. All of them. They're gone. I win. That's an aside that doesn't matter right now. But you think you, for any of you who have siblings, you have probably bickered with your siblings, but, but at the core, 
for the most part, you love each other, you get together, you work things out, that sort of thing. From the time that they were still in the womb, these two were already battling and, would con- and God's saying, and are going to continue to battle for a very long time. There's, there's, there's a divide between these two that God has orchestrated for his divine purpose so that he could accomplish something through both of them. It was that he was yet again defying expectations of what would become of her children. He was, and he was orchestrating it all the time. Because, because there are two sons within her. And that only one of the sons would continue the promise that God had made to Abraham. Only one was a recipient of the promise. Only one was going to continue to be the response to God's faithfulness. It was not a promise meant for both of them. And again, defying, challenging our expectations. He says, it will be the older who serves the younger. He says, he says the older will be the stronger. The older will be the tougher. And we kind of got that picture when it said, said Isaac, Isaac loved Esau. Like he was, he was the tough one. He could grow a beard, right? He went out and hunted. He was that guy. He was, he was, he was a tough guy. But yet the promise was going to continue through the younger, weaker mama's boy. Not saying there's anything wrong with that. Because God didn't see anything wrong with that. But, but he's defying, he's challenging the expectations of society. Think about it. The older, stronger son would obviously be the one that God would want to use. It's the same kind of approach that Israel had when they were demanding a king many, many years later. They're like, we want a king. And Saul walks into the room and they're like, that's our guy. That's the kind of king we want. Not the, not the I mean, think, think even farther on. When, when, the, when Samuel is talking to Jesse and he's, he knows the new king is going to come from one of his sons and he sees his oldest son. He's like, oh, this guy looks like a king. God's like, not him. And they get all the way down to the guy who sits out in the field playing the guitar and singing all day that can't grow a beard. I like that guy. Because that's me. No. But like, God consistently uses what we would expect to be the lesser choice, the weaker choice, the humbler choice. Not because it's wrong to be strong, not because it's wrong to be born first, but because if, if, if Esau was the recipient of the promise and he was the strong one, that's exactly what we would have expected. It's exactly how it worked out. And we could say, oh, he won because he came first and it's just the way things worked out. But no, if, if, if Jacob is going to be the one who's the recipient of God's promises, it's only because God intervened and changed the story. It's only because God worked it out in the way that he had decided to. But that is the legacy of who God is and how he has worked. Seth, Isaac, now Jacob. David, years later. Jesus, son of a carpenter. Born out of wedlock. Like, none of these people that are used in part of God's plan to bring about salvation, none of these are the obvious choice. None of these are the ones that society looks like and says, that's the guy we need. 
That's the one we want. All of these are God saying, I'm going to use the humble, the forgotten, the outcast even, even possibly, the weak. It's in our weakness that he accomplishes so much. And so we're left again in a place where we could question why God is doing things the way he is. Because if you think about it, yes, as God chooses one son to be the heir of the promise, he's also choosing one son to not be the heir of the promise. He's not going to receive the blessing of God. He's not going to continue the faithful story of God. He is going to be at war with the people of God for the rest of his life. He is going to be outside of what God has chosen. And it's because of all these reversed expectations that God's choice, God's, God's working in this moment is even more apparent. It's not based on luck of the draw. It's not based on I was born first. It's not based on I won the arm wrestling competition or the beard growing competition. He's actively, God is actively selecting the younger, weaker brother. Who isn't even the one that feels closest to his father, who was the one that God had continued the promise through. Every step along the way in what defines who Jacob and Esau are, God is going against what society and we would expect to be the one that God would use. And in doing so, that demonstrates that it can only be that God is the one choosing these things. This demonstration of God's sovereign choice is a perfect example of what it is that we experience when we are saved. It is a direct, has a direct correlation. And that's why I have you holding your place in Romans chapter 9. Because God sums up the way God worked through Abraham's descendants. Romans chapter 9, I'm going to start in verse 6. It says, But it's not as though the word of God has failed. That's speaking of when people are left unsaved. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Right? We, we just talked about that. Abraham had lots of children, but only through Isaac was the promise coming. Verse 8, this means that it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So he's already said, I'm defying expectations even through Sarah because he's not, your son's not going to be your firstborn. Ishmael was the firstborn. I'm coming back and that's the son that I choose. Verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So look at God's motivation for his decision in this. He is intentionally 
challenging our expectations and choosing people who are outside of what our expectations were to demonstrate his sovereignty within his creation. God's motivation is that we would know that he is in control. His, mo- his entire motivation behind why he would choose Jacob over Esau And if you read the rest of Romans chapter 9, why he would choose some to be saved but not all to be saved is so that we could understand his sovereignty and his control over all aspects of his creation. Paul's trying to say, you have to understand. This is important because we need to know that God is in charge. We are not in control. God is demonstrating his sovereignty as he works out his plan. He doesn't work out our plans. We don't work out our plans. He works out his plan. And we get to be going along for the ride with it. He gets to use us. So why do we need to understand this? And these are some of the questions that you may be asking yourselves. These are, all, these are questions that I have asked myself at one point or another. So, so wouldn't you say if God's the one doing all of this, if God's the one saving and not saving, if God's the one who's accomplishing with some people and not accomplishing with others, does this absolve us from having to do anything? Do we even need to evangelize? Should we even bother to go out and walk around on Wednesdays like we have been? Yes, we should go out. We should evangelize because because God has given us the great commission. He's called us specifically go out and share the gospel, making disciples. But here's the thing that we have to understand that that salvation is a work of God. We we can go out and proclaim the gospel. And this is why it's so helpful to understand that God is in control of all of this, because because as we go out and proclaim, we can proclaim the gospel without fear. You don't have to worry, what if I don't say it right? What if I don't do the right thing? What if I'm wearing the wrong pair of pants that day? That doesn't matter because God will save who he's going to save and he only uses us. He he allows us to be a part of the story. We are the vessels through which the gospel flows. So we can confidently go out proclaiming. And that's that to me is the most encouraging motivation for evangelism that I can give you. Uh, several months ago, some of us went to an evangelism training um, at a church over here. That was, was it uh, Grace? What's, what's the name of it? Grace Gospel Church. I always forget names. Sorry. We went over to Grace Gospel Church, and there was this evangelism training. And the whole first half, like two hours of the training, was just him saying, you only need to be willing to share the gospel and trust that God will take care of the rest. It is not on you. You only need to be faithful to take the gospel. God is in charge of the results. And so here's the the question that I have for us this morning. In the moments that are the most challenging, in the moments where we're being asked to do something that seems hard, or being asked to grow in a way that we don't feel like we can, or, or there's something that feels incomplete or broken in our lives. Does our understanding of God being in control of his creation cause us to 
shy away, run back, hide, say, well, he's going to fix it if he's going to fix it? Or do, we, or do we, knowing that, loving that God is in charge, passionately pursue him in prayer and say, God, please accomplish some sort of change in my life. Or, or God, please use, use this church, use these people going out and talking to other people. Use this to, to, to save people, to bring people into the church to affect great change in the lives of the people that we come into contact with? Do we call on God like Rebecca and Isaac did? Or do we try to manufacture a solution like Sarah and Abraham once did? Because I want us, as the church, to be the ones who are so filled with confidence because we know that God is in charge that we move forward, we, we progress forward without fear. Because we have nothing to fear, because we have a God who is sovereign over his creation and a God who is going to accomplish his will. And praise God that he uses us and that he get, we get to be a part of that plan working out. But oh, that we would be a people who so passionately pursue that mission because we know we have nothing to lose. Because we've already gotten everything we have to gain in Jesus. That's it. We've already gotten all that we need. We have Jesus. We have salvation. He has saved us. He has added us to his church. And if you are in Christ, if you are saved, you have nothing to fear to be, about praying for somebody or about, or about going to God on somebody else's behalf. There's nothing to worry you about walking up to somebody you've never met before and saying, hey, how's it going? I'm walking around here just praying for people. Is there anything I can pray about for you? What do you have to lose? What's the worst thing that can happen? I'm sure you're all running through your mind. I can think of a lot of really bad things that could happen talking to somebody I don't know. Worst case scenario, you end up with Jesus. <laughs> That's worst case. We have nothing to lose because our God is good and our God is in control. And, and if our faith is truly in Him, and that's the question, is your faith truly in Him? Do you really have all of your hope wrapped up in Christ? Because if your hope is wrapped up in Christ, then that is going to be what motivates you in times of trouble, in times of pain, in times of uncertainty. That's when you're going to be most drawn back to Him. And if that's not you, if you're not in Christ, if you're like, I don't believe that. I don't believe in Him in that way. My life doesn't look like my response to him when things get bad is more to either try to fix it or to get, get angry or to fight it. To you, I say, look at what it can be. You can have your faith in a God who desires to save you and give you this new family. You can have this body of believers that are ready to wrap around you and love you and become your family for you. Even, even if even if you don't have a great relationship with your family, you can have an amazing relationship with a family, with, with a good father who loves you and who is in charge and who is able. I can, say, I can say all day to Ellie, I'm going to protect you, but I can only protect her as much as I can protect her. I'm not God. I am not sovereign. I am not in control of all of creation. In the end... Every, everything that I can give to protect her is nothing compared to what God is able to accomplish. And, 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 and if you can see that being true of him, 
If you can understand that, that's why you would then desire to put your faith in him, to follow him, to believe in him. And that's what my prayer is for those of you who are not yet in Christ. So I'm going to pray for you specifically now. Let's pray.